It's 1944, and five children are killed in the bombing of a Woolworth store in southeast London. But what if they had lived? Follow them through the years as they encounter all the reality of life in the 20th century. From Francis Spufford, Costa Prize-winning author of Golden Hill, comes Light Perpetual, a novel of the everyday and the miraculous, of second chances and redemptions. Light Perpetual. Out now in hardback and ebook from Waterstones. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time we'll be celebrating two major anniversaries. 60 years ago, on the 12th of April, 1961, Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin became the first person to reach outer space. And 40 years ago, NASA's iconic space shuttle recorded its first flight. We're being quite ambitious doing both in the one (laughs) podcast. Well, for incredible milestones, we needed incredible guests. And we're joined by Libby Jackson, who's in charge of human spaceflight for the UK Space Agency. Hi, Libby. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be back. Oh, what a pair of anniversaries to be celebrating. It's great, isn't it? And we also have multi-award winning documentary filmmaker, non-fiction writer and Yuri Gagarin biographer Stephen Walker. Hi, Stephen. Hi, thanks very much. It's great to be on the podcast. And I just want to say, because we'll talk to you in just a second, how great your book is. The book is called Beyond the Astonishing Story of First Human to Leave Our Planet and Journey into Space. And later in the show, we'll hear from two shuttle astronauts, Sid Gutierrez and Kathy Sullivan, who was from that first intake. But let's begin in 1961, and the cosmonaut who kick-started human spaceflight. This is how Radio Moscow broadcast the news. Today, the 12th of April, 1961, the first cosmic spaceship named Vostok, and a man on board, was orbited round the Earth from the Soviet Union. He is airman... Major Yuri Gagarin, the latest message from Major Gagarin was received at 9.22 Moscow time, and he reports that the flight is okay and that he feels well. This is Radio Moscow. Well, that was the first the world knew that there was a cosmonaut in space. And that is in itself extraordinary, isn't it, Stephen? Just the, the secrecy surrounding the Soviet space program. It's incredible, actually, just how secret it all was. And in fact, that was not just the first the world knew. It was the first his own wife knew, Yuri Gagarin's wife knew, and indeed his mother and father, and indeed his entire family. I mean, there's a wonderful story in the book. This is absolutely what happened. His father, who was called Alexei, had gone off that day. He was a carpenter and had gone off that day from his little town called Gzhatsk, now called Gagarin, which is about 80 kilometers west of Moscow, to a village to mend the roof of a state 
collective farm clubhouse. And somewhere in the last village that he passed through on a muddy, muddy field, somebody called out and said, I've just heard on the radio that your son, Yuri, is in outer space right now. And, uh, and Alexa, what are you talking about? He, he's a fighter pilot. He, I don't know. It must be another Yuri Gagarin. He says, no, no, it says it's Yuri Gagarin from, from this area. And he says, no, there are plenty of Yuri Gagarins out there. It can't be the same one. And that's his own father. So the incredible thing about all of this, as you say, is the secrecy was, it was institutionalized. It was pervasive. It was corrosive. And sometimes it was comical. Because sometimes secrets got tangled up with other secrets, which then contradicted the first secrets. And you end up with multiple ways of telling the same story, trying to thread your way through this sort of gospel according to Yuri Gagarin until you actually try to get to some kernel of what really happened. But that is extraordinary, isn't it? Because this is one of the most significant events in human history. And yet it's only now we're kind of piecing together the facts about this, and, and, and I'm really impressed with the amount of research you've done, because I mean, I've written quite a lot on the Soviet and Russian space program, and it's really difficult to find out what is true and what is not true. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 unbelievable in this instance, actually. But, you know, I, I, I met some incredible people, got drunk on lots of vodka. That's when you get the real stories, actually, by the way, sitting in a St. Petersburg flat at two o'clock in the morning, talking to a couple who were both young engineers, men and women in the Cosmodrome in Baikonur in Kazakhstan back in the 50s and 60s. And you sing songs and you drink vodka and you start to kind of piece stories which connect with other stories. So I became a kind of detective, really, which is trying to thread my way through all of this stuff. And, you know, going to America and going to the NASA archives, it's all there, right down to the minute this happened, that happened. These contradictions don't exist. But in Russia, they do. And it's all born out of that culture of secrecy. I mean, the Soviets were training there are 20 cosmonauts in absolute secrecy, whereas, of course, the Mercury 7, the seven astronauts picked to be the first American astronaut in space, were incredibly famous and were all over Life magazine and were kind of rock stars in their time. But these other 20 were all training in the shadows, all the shadows. And it was quite incredible how they weren't allowed to reveal any of what they were doing to anybody whatsoever. That's how they moved. All the technology was protected. When there were mistakes and accidents and things went wrong, they were kept secret, not just for days or weeks, but for decades. The worst accident in entire rocket history, which took place in 1916, killed well over 100 people, which I talk about in my book, was kept secret for over 30 years. So there is this sort of, I mean, it's like a fetish for secrecy to protect their kind of technology from any kind of invasion or penetration, if you like, from the West. Uh, And let's talk about Gagarin himself. And he was typical of the other pilots. They weren't like the Mercury 7. They weren't elite test pilots. They were kind of young pilots from from Russia, crucially, because although this was a Soviet project, they really needed to be Russian and they knew there would, they would be a propaganda value in the first successful cosmonaut. Yeah, and they had to be good communists as well. I mean, they also, one other key point about it, they were fit. Um, they were much fitter than the kind of, relatively speaking, quite old 
test pilots who became the Mercury 7, who were very experienced pilots, as you rightly say, all these finest kind of whiz jets, real, the hottest, most dangerous jets on the planet, really, and flying them really, really well. But they were all in their mid-30s or from their early to late 30s, actually. Whereas these cosmonauts, these, they were a good 10 years younger. And there was a reason for that. And the reason is that one of the heroes in my book, really, I think he's a really remarkable human being, a man called Sergei Korolev, who was the architect of the whole space program, the guy responsible for Sputnik as well as Yuri Gagarin and a host of other space firsts. He was like an Elon Musk of his day. He was looking to explore way beyond just going, this is the first step. You know, the idea was to have space stations, to get to the moon, to get to Mars, to get to the outer planets of the solar system. And so these 20 men were chosen because they had ambitions way beyond just putting a man in orbit. And they wanted them young so they'd have sort of many years ahead of them. And they needed them to be fit because they really weren't sure what was going to happen to them in space. But they didn't need to be very good pilots because they weren't expected to do any actual flying. They were expected essentially to endure whatever was thrown at them in the, including dying, frankly, in the course of whatever mission they were asked to fly. This seems like a sort of significant attitude and mindset difference, doesn't it, between the American space program and and the Soviet unions, because there are the American pilots rebelling in some cases in terms of, hold on, we, we're pilots, we want to fly this, we want to say in this. And then the other side where actually it's sort of do as you told, keep your mouth shut, don't tell people. This is a secret. So when the lead up then to the, to the launch, how did that proceed? Well, I mean, the interesting thing is, is that the, it gets, again, it's sort of faintly comical sometimes. There's a, there is a sort of Wallace and Gromit kind of quality to all of this, you know, going to the moon. I mean, there really is something. I mean, it is, they take these sensational risks, basically. Um, one of the things just picking up on that point about the cosmonauts versus the astronauts is that the astronauts, the Mercury 7, had been training for nearly two years how to fly, if they needed to, manual descents from space back to Earth, you know, getting the orientation of the the attitude of the spacecraft exactly right, using little thrusters, and then actually preparing for re-entry. And it had to be absolutely right. It's a critical manoeuvre. If you get it too wrong, you're going to burn up or you'll skip back into space. But in the case of the cosmonauts, they had about three hours to do what the Mercury astronauts had two years to train for. They literally trained in a laboratory in the Cosmodrome in front of a kind of a made-up Heath Robinson instrument panel sitting at a table about four days before one of them actually flew into space. So it was, it was everything is like this. Everything is hurry, hurry, hurry. Tons of stuff isn't tested. The day or two days before the Vostok, as it's called, capsule, is actually going to fly in space with a human being inside it. They suddenly realize it's too heavy. And there's a scene that absolutely happened. I've got witnesses to this in my book, where an engineer took it upon himself through the night to rip bits of equipment out of the capsule. This is three days before the flight in order to get the weight down so that it wouldn't be too heavy when it flew. And so Korolev comes into the assembly room the next morning and is absolutely horrified to find 
bits of the guts of this capsule all over the floor. And somebody's saying, well, you know, we're trying to get the weight down and we're trying to lose a few kilos. What lies behind all of this is a thrust to be first at almost any cost, even obviously at the cost of a human life, that the need, the requirement to dazzle the world, to get ahead of the Americans in a very divided world in the middle of the Cold War, everything is happening right now in the Cold War. Vietnam is about to take off. Berlin Wall is about to be built, whatever. All these things are happening and they have to get first. So they take the kind of risks that the cautious Americans just won't take. And they can do it because they know that they're going to launch in secret. And if this thing blows up on the pad, so be it. They're only going to announce it, as we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, when Gagarin, whoever it is, is going to be actually in orbit, when essentially they've done the first part right. And so they can afford to take risks because they can afford to kill people, effectively, in silence. Now, we, of course, know that Yuri Gagarin survived, had a successful flight. Not, I mean, didn't all exactly go like clockwork. No, lots went wrong, yeah. Lots went wrong. Libby, what do you make of this? It also seems extraordinary to me that it's only now 60 years on that we're starting to get at what actually happened. It doesn't surprise me at all when you talk about the secrecy. I know from the time I've spent reading books, researching, just imbuing myself in human spaceflight, which is what I've done for my whole life, that the Russian and Soviet stories are always uh, just not as 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 well documented. They're not as well broadcast, and it's one of the reasons I've got so excited about about the copy of this book. Is is say the very first page, and it says this is all as it happened. And to hear Stephen talking about he's got witnesses to the event where they've been ripping spacecraft out <laughs> just beforehand. Um, I'm I'm so excited to to, to read it, but it's it, it's also fantastic that 60 years on we're celebrating it i still though look back at what happened in those early years of human spaceflight where you went from nothing to yuri gagarin to you know 1961 to 10 years later less than that landing on the moon and it sort of to me puts today's world in in a very different light sometimes and the flight itself <laughs> how dramatic was that for yuri gagarin because you know you read his accounts afterwards all the interviews he ever gave it was all worry free it was all perfect <laughs> It wasn't worry-free. No, I mean, don't go into all the detail, but I mean... Oh, God, I wouldn't but... dream of it. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> Otherwise, no one will buy the book. It, it was it was traumatic and dangerous. I mean, it was so dangerous. I mean, somebody actually calculated afterwards what his chances were of coming through this ordeal alive. It was less than 50-50. So it was more chance of dying than not. I mean, that's pretty terrible odds when you think about it. I think one of the things that I find incredible... What I tried to do in the book at that point was really put you in the driving seat, put the reader in the driving seat. You know, what was it really like for the first human being to sit inside a sphere, a padded sphere, basically, with three portholes and 11 minutes after being launched on top of the world's most powerful missile, essentially replacing a hydrogen bomb, he is sitting there and he looks out of the window. And he sees something that no human eye, no eye had ever seen before, not from this planet anyway. And to do that is remarkable in itself. But beyond all the danger, beyond all the kind of craziness, 
there was something remarkable about this idea that he is traveling at whatever it is, 18,000 miles an hour. He goes through a sunset and then a sunrise within 35 minutes. He is somebody who at one point, at very many points actually in the flight, has no radio communication at all with the ground. We, we are kind of used to the idea of constant radio communication with mission control. Well, there was no mission control and there is mostly no radio communication, which means he's alone. He's sort of alone in a way that no human being had ever really been alone above the earth, spinning slowly seeing the stars unfiltered, as it were, not twinkling, seeing these incredible colours and the atmosphere so thin and seeing everything happening in fast motion, every sun, the sunset and the sunrise, and seeing it without telling anybody except a tape recorder where they had forgotten to put enough tape in. So he had to take one of the few autonomous actions in the entire flight and rewind the tape and record over everything he just said about his own reactions. To have that experience, I'm trying to put your, I mean, we're so used to the idea of astronauts going into orbit into the ISS and so on, but to try and put yourself in the place in that padded orange spacecraft, you know, with these few dials and instruments and nobody to talk to and put yourself there. It is an incredible, I mean, it is an incredible moment in in all history, I think, to escape the biosphere, effectively, the first organic thing in three and a half billion years, actually to leave this planet and see it for what it is. So even though there's tremendous risk and danger, and I hope that I do justice to that, there's a lot that goes wrong, and I won't go into it because I think it's quite exciting to sort of read. I think there's a sort of a, that's why I call it beyond, there's a sort of a bigger point about actually what it means to leave the cave, which is essentially what this man did. That's very poetic. I would also like to add to this, you know, to the contrast between what you've discovered and are writing about in your book and what actually happened. I got for Christmas, one of my Christmas presents from Richard is this lovely old book. I might put a picture of it on Twitter and Facebook called The Soviet Man in Space. It's published by Foreign Languages Publishing House, Moscow. And uh, it's only at the end that they get to the flight. And uh, this gives you a hint that it may be slightly corporate. While flying over the territory of the Soviet Union, Yuri Gagarin saw the outlines of collective farm fields. (laughs) 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 Which is marvellous. And um, (laughs) and, and throughout it, it will say at 09.52 hours, the apparatus on board was operating normally. Yeah, the apparatus. And, And some of that apparatus is still not understood, even to this day. I mean, that's the incredible thing. Some of it is still secret. You know, there are things that people will not talk about. And it's quite fascinating, actually, to sort of see. I mean, I was in a museum in Gagarin's hometown of Gajatsk, as I was now called Gagarin. We were in this museum and I was asking some questions about Gagarin's orbit. And the museum director just clammed up. I mean, it was the most incredible thing. And my Russian researchers said that he had mentioned to his assistant, he said, we don't talk about that. You know, I was a Westerner coming in, telling the story of their icon. And there was always the danger 
that I might be here to trash it or to do something terrible or to reveal truths that may be somewhat uncomfortable. I don't know. Whatever it was, sometimes it's very difficult to penetrate. So you still find that. I mean, in a way, the book is as much a commentary about Russia today as it is a commentary about Russia in 1961. And in some respects, perhaps it's not so different. He deserves, though, doesn't he, Gagarin, despite the lies and the propaganda and the the untruths at the heart of this story. It's still a remarkable undertaking. And he deserves his hero status, doesn't he? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I would never have written a book like that if I didn't feel that. I mean, it is a fabulous story. He is an extraordinary human being. There's no question that to the guts to do what he did, to be the first person to sit on a nuclear missile effectively and be blasted into orbit with the kind of primitiveness of which he was pretty much aware of the technology at the time. It's incredible. And it, you know, and when it happened, because we're all, everything we have now is kind of influenced by what happened in 69 with the moon. But at the time, the guy was the most famous man on the planet. I mean, every single newspaper media outlet in the world was saying this is the most important moment in human history. I mean, that's what it, 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 that's what it was. It was huge. And so for the man at the centre, the epicentre of all of that, I do take my hat off to him, actually. I think if you cast away all that Soviet stuff and that corporate stuff that you're talking about just then, there is a really quite remarkable human being in there, as there are remarkable characters surrounding him in that venture. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Stephen Walker, the book is Beyond the Astonishing Story of the First Human to Leave Our Planet and Journey into Space. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Still to come, we jump ahead 20 years from Gagarin to the start of the space shuttle era with two of the space plane's astronaut corps. Do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. You can also email us. That's exciting, isn't it? Uh, podcast at spaceboffins.com, which seems to work intermittently, or info at boffinmedia.co.uk. And if you're new to Space Boffins, do follow the podcast and maybe write a review, but not before you have listened to Sue say this. On the 12th of April, 1981, coinciding with the 20th anniversary of Gagarin's flight, NASA launched a new type of reusable spacecraft, the Space Shuttle. NASA's fleet of Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis and Endeavour flew a total of 133 successful missions over the program's 30-year history. And I spoke to astronaut Sid Gutierrez, an aeronautical engineer and pilot who flew on two of those missions, commanding the second, about what it was like to fly the shuttle. T-minus 10, 9, 8, I remember we were sitting on the launch pad. I looked over at the commander and he was adjusting the lights on his instrument panel. So it's 9.30 in the morning. The sun is coming in my window. It's really bright. I said, uh, Brian, um, you're adjusting the lights on your instrument panel. He said, yeah. I didn't say, why would you be doing that at 9.30 in the morning? But that was the obvious question. He said, yeah, once we launch, it'll be dark in 30 minutes. And I was like, oh, yeah. So that's when it dawned on me that this was really going to be different, that in 30 minutes, we were going to be on the other side of the world. The ascent was exciting. 
You go up to three Gs. When you're being thrust through the atmosphere, the vehicle shakes. Uh, it feels like uh, my comparison would be to be in a washing machine. It's really shaking and rattling and everything. The solid rocket boosters are burning. The vehicle is aerodynamically not designed to go hundreds of miles per hour. So you've got seven and a half million pounds of thrust forcing it to go 450 miles an hour in the atmosphere or whatever. It's shaking like anything that's going much faster than it would apparently be designed to go. Shortly after the solid rocket boosters separated, they are pushed away by large solid rocket motors that are about maybe 10 inches in diameter and 15 inches long or whatever. And they fire and you literally have flames out in front of the the window and you see a big flash there. And so after I saw that big flash, I couldn't see anything outside. It was perfectly, it was just black out there. And there had been reports of some soot from those boosters those separation rockets impinging on the windshield and causing some visibility issues for the pilot and commander. So I looked out there, I couldn't see anything at all. And I thought, this is not a visibility issue. This is like, I can't see anything. But we were flying uphill and we weren't trying to land at that point. So it's the closest alligator is the one you deal with, right? So so I didn't worry about that till we got into orbit. And then after shutdown, I thought, okay, now I better mention to the commander that I can't see anything out of my window. Just before I did that, fortunately, the vehicle rotated a little bit, and I looked up at the top of the window, and I saw the Earth. So what I was looking at was the blackness of space, and it was so totally black that I thought my windshield was just covered with soot, and I couldn't see out of it. What was it like to see the Earth like that? It was, you know, just beautiful relatively small compared to what you think of the earth. You know, I mean, when you think about it, when I was a kid, I never thought I'd ever be to China, much less fly over the place hundreds of times. You go around the world in 90 minutes. So that concept takes a while to sink in. We made it into orbit. So we separated from the tank. I think we took a few pictures of it. And then I got the 17-inch disconnect doors closed. So the hydrogen and the oxygen come in the belly of the shuttle. If those doors don't close, you're not coming home. So that's kind of important. Everybody else kind of celebrates when you get into orbit because they think, okay, we're in orbit. We're okay for a while. The pilot and commander never relax until those doors latch shut. So when I got them shut, then I told Brian, we're good. Then I started relaxing. And at that point, somebody went floating by. So I'm still strapped in my seat because I have to do things. I think Jim Bajan went floating by and I was like, oh, yeah, that's the other thing. This is different. People are just floating, you know, floating around. What was it like to pilot the shuttle, to be the commander? What was it like to fly compared to, say, a plane? Flying the vehicle itself is interesting in that it has a 110 millisecond time delay in the response of the controls to an input. That may not sound like much to you, but human beings can detect very readily a 73 millisecond time delay. So for example, if you were to move the steering wheel on your car and it responded within 50 milliseconds, you wouldn't worry about it. But if it took about 150 milliseconds to respond, you would say something's wrong and you would move the steering wheel more. And then you would get both of the responses, which would be way too much. So then you would move back in the other direction. 
and then you would be zigzagging back and forth down the road. So that's what tends to happen to pilots who fly vehicles that have over a 73 millisecond time delay. Those shuttle is way outside that at 110 milliseconds. So that causes pilots to want to over control. But, you know, we were aware of that in advance. I was aware of that. What you have to do is just build a filter into your system, not respond as quickly, not over control, basically be calm, wait for the input to happen. Now, if you're coming down final approach at, you know, 17, 19 degree angle at 300 knots headed toward the ground, that requires a little bit of discipline to not over control or whatever. The military would deem it unflyable because it's of that time delay, but you don't have to do really complex maneuvers. All you really need to do is make some turns, line up on final, keep it lined up on final and make the final flare and landing. The Apollo missions and the Gemini were were all men. One of the things that the shuttle program did really was change the demographic of astronauts. It made it much more diverse. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're often called, you know, the first Latin American mm-hmm. astronaut. There were women, there were different different nationalities. Do you think that was one of the pluses of, of the shuttle in that it did give a broader viewpoint for, for who is seen as an astronaut? Yeah. So I will I, I, I will mention one thing with regard to that. So, you know, I was in the shuttle program. Um, at one point you share offices uh, at the Johnson Space Center, astronauts do. If you're assigned to a crew, you you crew in an office, a large office with your crew. If you're not assigned to a crew, then you're randomly assigned to offices with other individuals. One of my first office mates was Judy Resnick, who was lost on the uh, Challenger accident. Then um, uh, one of my office mates was Sally Ride. So, you know, I was pretty proud going home and everything about the fact that we had, you know, a number of women in the program. I was uh, technically the second American Hispanic astronaut. Franklin Diaz was the first, but I was the first commander, period. I was proud of all of this. One day I went home and uh, my oldest daughter, she's always asked challenging questions. So she said, Dad, how many girl astronauts are there? And I said, I added it up in my head. I was coming up. I said, I think we have 25 to 30. And she said, oh. Dad, how many total astronauts are there? And I'm like, oh, no. Ah, I said, oh, about 110 or so. She said, that's not enough girl astronauts. <laughs> and so, yeah, we thought we'd made a lot of progress, but we have a ways to go. Nose gear touchdown. Having fired the imagination of a generation, a ship like no other, its place in history secured, the space shuttle pulls into port for the last time. Its voyage at an end. Space Shuttle Commander Sid Gutierrez. With us still is the UK Space Agency's Human Exploration Program Manager, Libby Jackson. Look, it made me sound. Let me shout as I had a field drunk. Libby, it's it's honestly I've not drunk anything. Uh, Libby, Sid, he flew on um, two missions: Columbia in 1991, Endeavour in 1994. What do you recall about those early days of the shuttle? They were what got me into space. They are why I'm sitting here today talking to you with the job title of Human Exploration Program Manager. They were captivating to me. It, it's it's funny. What do I remember specifically? 
not a lot because I was 10 or so when when Sid flew. But I do have a very early memory from some wet school holiday. It was probably about Easter where my dad took me and my sister to a supermarket and we got to choose a model that I remember very clearly. We had to cut out every single, it was a cardboard model. We had to cut out every single bit with a scalpel and then glue it all together. And I chose the space shuttle and spent many happy hours building that. And I can only have been maybe nine or 10. My sister was seven or eight. But she chose a house and she's now an architect as well. So it was, it was that, that whole summer just stays with me because that's, that's what space meant to me. The space shuttle, it was there. It was all encompassing. It was what space was all about. It's funny because I, I, I think I've shared with our podcast listeners before that while I don't have a, a memory of like the, the early space shuttle flights, what I do have up in the attic somewhere in a box, not been seen for 20 years, but it's somewhere there, is a technical manual that was sent to me in the 1970s of the space shuttle because I'd written to, as you know, Libby, I'd written to NASA saying I wanted to be an astronaut as a teenager. And they'd written back to me. And one of the things that they included was this technical manual, which looked like it had been printed on an old manual typewriter. And it probably was, you know, it probably was just, just typed. And one of those replicators with the carbon paper possibly i don't yeah. know i would say i need to find it but we definitely still have it and rich has just grabbed from oh, the well, bookshelf if, if we're going actually. to go if we're going to go for childhood memories of the space shuttle so i fall midway between the two of you in age Thank profile <laughs> this was actually my one of my uh, probably my favorite book um when i was younger it's published in 1979 the space shuttle handbook so this is actually before the first space shuttle flew and it's actually, I mean, considering I had this when I was about 10, it's a beautiful condition. I loved this book and just the excitement of the, of, of the space shuttle. And, and Libby, do you think the space shuttle really ever lived up to, to it, to its promise to the, you know, this idea of almost this, this sort of truck in space that could do anything? Yes, completely. It's brought us Hubble. It's brought us the International Space Station. It, allowed the US and Russia to come together in the shuttle Mir collaborations, which is what led to the International Space Station and America and Russia still working together today in space, when in other areas, they perhaps don't always see eye to eye. We never got to 52 flights a year and that sort of routine repetitiveness that was promised right at the beginning. But the legacy that it's left us the people it inspired, and I count myself in that, and, and I think you too as well. Absolutely, it's delivered. And space would look very different today if we hadn't have, have had the space shuttle. Now, I believe you share an anniversary with the shuttle. <laughs> what, what, what is it? Plus or minus a few weeks. But yeah, I was all of about three and a half weeks old when that very first space shuttle flight launched. So I was celebrating my birthday uh, just a few weeks back. And I, I did ask my mum, did, did I watch it? And, and she reassures me that, yeah, I probably did see it, whether it was on the news or something, but it's not stayed with her in quite the same way it stayed with me. But the space shuttle and I have, have grown up together. It's played a significant part in my career as it's gone along. And that's all led me to be here today, to be talking about human spaceflight and trying to share with as many people as possible the excitement of space and that anyone who's listening to this can be a part of it as well. 
Uh, I just noticed on this uh, space shuttle handbook, it says uh, across in a little banner across the uh, the back includes official blueprints, which I think just pretty much sums up the difference in approach between <laughs> the shuttle program and what we were talking about earlier with the um, secrecy surrounding the uh, the Russian. So in fact, program. all the Russians had to do was send do what I did was send NASA a, a little letter. Exactly. Saying, you know, I really love NASA and would like to be an astronaut. And they would have, they would have sent them the technical specifications. Well, they could have like, bought no this. Um, is this an Osborne book? I think <laughs> they could have just bought this in 1979 and they would have had, that's probably what they used for Buran, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also that, um, inspiration that the shuttle had on showing women in particular. Although the Russians have put the first woman in space, there hadn't been a, a woman in space uh, for almost, you know, another 20 years. Um, and it was having not just uh, one token woman in that 35 uh, of the first astronaut corps for the space shuttle. It was having six women. Did that really affect you as well in terms of knowing and growing up alongside it, but knowing that the, for you there were always women in space? I think it must have done. It, it wasn't for me the big shift because I hadn't lived through the, the earlier times. And so I look back and I go, well, it, it, it must be because I know today how important it is for people to see people like them doing jobs, how much easier it is when the barriers have been broken. And so for me to be looking at what are the most visible parts of the space industry, they, they always are, they always will be. And to see that there were women there must have helped me sort of know that this was something I could do. Certainly, I was I was very fortunate, I think, growing up, I was supported in my interests by being built, bought cardboard cutout space shuttles, by being encouraged when I came home saying, I want to go to space school. It's all played a part of it. And, and it's, it's really important to me that everybody today knows that even though the industry is still male dominated, it's not unwelcome to women. It, come along, join in. It's, it, it's fantastic. We want to have you. Well, as we touched on with Sid, the idea that anyone, regardless of their sex or colour of their skin, can aspire to be an astronaut is it's relatively new, really. I mean, Valentina Tereshkova, she became the first woman in space in 1963. But as we just mentioned, you know, it was another 20 years before NASA actually launched anyone other than white men, although they did launch two female spiders, and a female monkey. And that all changed, though, when NASA launched its 1976 recruitment drive with a wonderful, familiar voice. Hi, I'm Michelle Nichols, but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th century enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration. When NASA unveiled its new class of astronauts in 1978, they were known as the 35 New Guys. As well as the usual contingent of white ex-military men, there were three African-American men, one Asian-American man and six 
women. One of them, geologist Dr. Kathy Sullivan, eventually flew three times. She became the first American woman to do a spacewalk and was part of the crew that launched the Hubble Space Telescope, as well as playing a major role in designing procedures vital for its repair. But she began by telling us what made her decide to become an astronaut. I had been mesmerized by all of the early space program, uh, but in particular, the images of the Earth that the astronauts brought back, both from orbit and, of course, the spectacular ones from the moon. I was familiar and enjoyed planning and mounting big expeditions. Mine had all been out on the ocean up to that point, but that struck me as a very good parallel set of experiences, the right building blocks anyway, to hone those skills even further. And then there was the view out the window, which to me was just irresistible. <laughs> I can understand that. And do you remember much about the actual selection procedure? They were pretty swamped with applications. They had 8,700 or some odd. And the process of winnowing them all down to the smaller group to interview had understandably taken some time. The interview round was uh, a finalist group, if you will, of 200 individuals that they split into groups of 20 and brought each group down for a full week at the Johnson Space Center, getting to interview you and also putting you through a, a really intense battery of medical and psychological and other you know, screening procedures. The pivot point, I'm sure the highest, highest importance was attached to about an hour and a half long interview with uh, current astronauts of the day and other you know, flight directors, experienced space professionals. Uh, and it, it was one of those classic, very unstructured interviews that was I think meant as much to see how, how do you comport yourself in a high stakes setting that's underdetermined. You know, you, you don't really have enough information to know exactly how you should proceed. So how do you behave in a circumstance like that? And then there was another long period of radio silence until January of the following year as they winnowed the 200 they'd interviewed down to the final 35. And when you were doing the training itself, was there a natural divide either between the men and, and the women, or was it more a divide between those who were military and those like you who were scientists? Yeah, I, I think the civilian military and the, uh, the scientist pilot was, I think those were distinctions that seemed to have more traction in our world, more meaning sometimes. And how did that manifest itself? Was it a way of thinking? Well, I would say even those of us who were, you know, quote unquote scientists, the kind of science we had done had a high degree of operational nature to it. Uh, so doing actual real things in challenging environments where the stakes are high. And that that's, I think, the kind of testing experience that, it, that does develop certain habits of mind and certain elements of character. I think one of the differences, and in fact, one of my classmates, Mike Mullane, wrote about this in, in his first book, was some of the military guys, many of them had been tested in combat. And so they were kind of accustomed to judging quickly, how much can I trust someone by knowing if they too had been tested in combat? That said something about courage, character, ability to stay focused in very you know, challenging, dire circumstances. And here are all these scientists, and they haven't been tested that way. And that was always the definition of what you had to prove and live up to in order to earn the status of astronaut. And so how come they are here? And are they really up to this new thing that we're embarking into? As he writes in his own book, it didn't take him, even him very long to discover that they're there's more than one pathway to developing 
that sort of strength and character uh, and skill set. And we all had it in various degrees. I, I do think sometimes the larger NASA system, you know, sort of more accustomed to dealing with, you know, military, the military services, military promotions, annual fitness reviews, that was more familiar to them. And suddenly having a rather large bunch of plain old civil servants in the astronaut corps was a little bit different. I've interviewed Mike Mullane a couple of times. We know his attitude changed quite a lot, but he said at the beginning he felt himself superior to the women. How do you deal with people like that? Well, you know, how you feel about something is not my problem. So I just carry on. That's probably the best way to deal with it, quite frankly. I do like that because whatever well, you, yeah. you and Sally and, and your other, the other women did, it was a marvelous job because he changed which this program. Well, yeah, I think in that instance, example was far more valuable than argument. Did you feel then that you had to prove yourselves at all? Well, of course you have to prove yourself as a rookie astronaut. You know, you, you've probably been the one percenter top performer in everything you've done up to that point in your life. And now you're in a batch of 35 one percent performers. And we're all by, by nature somewhat competitive people, not necessarily, you know, take the other guy out of the game, but for at least competing with yourself to see uh, how well you can do something, how far you can go. That's part of the exhilaration and the fun of it really is to always be having new things to try to master and learn and see how well you can do them, how far you can get with them. How did NASA treat you as a group? Because this was new for them as well. They'd previously worked with really small groups of men only. This is a large group, very different backgrounds, a lot of different skills. And as you say, a sort of competitive, naturally talented, intellectually competitive bunch. By and large, they did a good job. I, I think there were certainly ways in which they carried on with the default presumption that probably the way we've been treating astronauts before is the same right and perfect way to treat astronauts now, even though some of them are different. And I think those default mindsets also evolved over time, rather like you know, Mike Mullane's did, that uh, you know the squadron locker room jockeying and joshing and challenging kind of culture is great for some people and probably want to add a couple other dimensions to your leadership culture to really be effective as the group that you're in charge of diversifies. We share lots of jokes and funny stories about some of the simple practicalities, like, you know, there was always an astronaut gym, but it only had ever needed one locker room. And of course, now it was going to need two locker rooms. And, you know, we can imagine a group of mid-1970s test pilots and facilities engineers trying to figure out what a woman's locker room should be like. And funny things like that, things like, uh, I mean, the inevitable, I don't, I'm not sure where you will go to the bathroom kinds of things because I've you know, never had to deal with this before. You know, there's a toilet right there. I'm pretty sure that'll be just fine. Um, <laughs> of the other 34 in your group, did you particularly bond with some more than others, who would you say were your sort of close allies there? You know, Fred Gregory uh, certainly remained a, a, a long time, it still is a long time friend. I, I think Sally and it was somewhat an ally, but always, always with Sally, somewhat a competitor. And sometimes one of those, let me see if I can take you out of the game competitors. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, it was a really pretty congenial, fun group to be with. You know, I certainly felt the collegial peer competitor dynamic. These were friends I would happily go out for a beer with, 
but that was not the circle of friends I would bear my soul to. Yeah, that could apply to so many competitive professions, actually. It's almost like journalism as well sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. And and what about the press? You know, was that difficult to deal with? Because the press were clamoring to find out as much as they could about these 35 new guys, even though the guys itself says a bit more about <laughs> the past than uh, the present there. Yeah, the press were much more interested in the 10 of us that were you know, novel. So six women and three African-Americans and an Asian-American. And there had never been human beings like that on the astronaut roster before. So this became a joke uh, amongst our class that you could consider us to be 10 interesting people and 25 standard white guys if you judged by how the press was interested. It was brand new to have any kind of level of media attention was, I think, brand new to certainly all six of us women. And we got just a little dose of a, a very helpful advice the evening before the public introduction of our class uh, in early 1978. Carolyn Huntuna was the senior female at the Johnson Space Center at the time, a biochemist, was kind of the den mother to our class and, and certainly to the six of us women for quite some time. And she got us aside briefly the evening before just to make us a little more aware of what the following day was likely to be and the mindset and interests that the press, the journalists would be bringing to the interviews. You know, they'll be coming at you with a set of, you know, pre-existing mental frames, if you will, looking for stories that fit in those frames. And you got, you guys might just want to think about how open or private do you wish to be about your private lives? Because they will gladly know everything. And if one of you decides, shucks, I'll tell you all about my past boyfriends and the others would rather not, you know, they'll be wheedling harder and harder because they got some of that juicy stuff out of one of you. So you might want to chat a bit amongst yourselves and find out how like-minded or, or not you are on questions like that. That was very helpful. And it turns out we all six were pretty much of the same kind of mind and adopted a little habit in between each of the barrage of interviews we went through the following day, we developed a little habit of needing to pop into the ladies' room between every interview because none of the journalists could go in there. <laughs> and they were all male. And we could you know, compare notes a little bit and give each other a heads up about what the guy from ABC was looking for. You're talking about the ladies' lose there. I've got to touch on this personal preference kit and the, the number of tampons and that were included in that. Um, how did you feel when you saw this? What made me laugh most of all was the mascara or the lipstick or something. I just thought, what? <laughs> it's a probably a group of male flight crew equipment engineers. That's what they would have been called. Sitting down and looking at you know the DOP kit, the toiletries kit, in the little spring top canvas container that they had always packed up for the male astronauts and scratching their heads and saying, oh my goodness, what do you think we put in for the women? I imagine if they would have consulted with anyone, it would have been you know, their wives and girlfriends about, you know, if you were about to step off a spaceship with the press covering your landing, would you want makeup? I mean, what do you think women would want to have in their toiletries kit for five or seven days in orbit? It was rational as a first cut assumption, but it was just way, way off the mark in so many ways. As I recall, five of us didn't care at all about having makeup in the kit. We weren't going to wear makeup during flight. And if we didn't look quite our absolute best as we stepped off a spaceship, we were not inclined to care very much about that. 
Ray Seddon, as I recall, cared rather more and wanted, I don't remember quite what items, but one or two makeup items in her kit. And that's fine. The guesstimating on how many tampons a woman would need was the one that was hilariously off the mark. They laid, I don't know how many dozens of tampons out side by side on a long strip of heavy pink plastic that's NASA's signature space packaging plastic. They laid them out, let's say, two inches apart, put another sheet of plastic on top and heat sealed them all. So you had this pink snake of dozens and dozens of tampons for a flight that might run you know, seven days. So you have a one in four chance it's those seven days and they've given you enough tampons to last you for the better part of a year. So. <laughs> and I suppose what enabled not just women, but mission specialists was the space shuttle that could carry seven crew on board. How do you feel now about the space shuttle as we, as we celebrate its 40th anniversary, which seems extraordinary since the first flight? Yeah, the space shuttle was a fabulous, fabulous vehicle and a really, I think, critical stepping stone into the era of routine living and working in space that we've now seen since 1998. True, it did not live up to the pre-flight promises of cost and frequency of flying. In a perfect world, I think I would have called the first two space shuttles experimental airplanes and you know, flown them a number of times to learn those lessons and then readjust to a modified design that could have gotten a lot closer, at least in theory, to that frequency and that cost. But budgets and politics and those kinds of realities pushed things in the direction that we saw. But it taught certainly the U.S. space program uh, a lot about living, working, operating. Uh, It was the space shuttle's ability to carry something like the Hubble Space Telescope that was one huge catalyst in turning spacewalks, EVA as we call them, from a, a slightly scary thing you only did if you really had to, into a routine mode of operation in orbit. The promise to be able to maintain Hubble for 15 years and, and replace equipment so it stayed at the cutting edge scientifically, that required a magnitude of spacewalking effort that NASA had never contemplated and never done before. And we're not talking, you know, go out and fetch a camera and bring it back in. We're talking fairly complex repairs. Learning how to climb that mountain for Hubble was a vital step in making the EBA capability of the International Space Station possible. And you could not have built the International Space Station without radically greater capability for spacewalking. You should always need to look at what's learned and carried on to next stages of life. Uh, and I think if you look at the shuttle program in that way, the lesson set, the operational set, uh, the skill set of engineers and scientists and space science teams that want to do work in orbit, it, it's just a vital catalyst to the era that we're seeing now, including the advent of more regularized and even commercial and quasi-commercial space flight. Talking about the, the space shuttle, I, I've been reviewing as we come up to this anniversary, the sorts of early missions. And you obviously got your mission launching Hubble, Anna Fisher's mission capturing satellites in orbit. And then you've got these astronauts untethered spacewalking. It just seems an extraordinary era, particularly that, that early era of the space shuttle where anything seemed possible. No, I think you're exactly right. And I think and NASA was quite conscious of that. You know, it was easiest to see the shuttle as a truck 
that could take larger cargoes, heavier and bigger, take them up to orbit. And because its launch was not as physically violent as an Apollo launch, you would not have to build your satellite to be as beefy as robust. You could, you know, you could have more more bang for the buck because you didn't need such a super heavy, strong structure just to survive. What NASA wanted in those early days to quickly prove and show to the world was that the shuttle was also a very versatile vehicle that could do the three R's. It could retrieve, it could repair, it could refuel spacecraft that were already in orbit, none of which had ever been done before. You have repair on the STS-41C mission in April of 1984. You have refuel on uh, my first mission in, in October of that year. And then in between those two flights, two commercial communication satellites were deployed from the shuttle and failed to fire the engines that would take them out to their assigned orbit. Uh, and so that's what led to uh, Anna Fisher's first flight, which was to retrieve them and bring them back to Earth. And all of that worked. And yes, uh, in, that included on both the repair and the retrieve missions, demonstrating the capability to put an astronaut, spacewalking astronaut, into a little back, a backpack of a jetpack and let the astronaut alone, untethered, fly hundreds of yards, hundreds of meters away from the space shuttle and you know, latch on to grab and even stabilize a satellite so that it was you know, safe and stable for the shuttle to, to rendezvous, rendezvous with and capture. And these were the first flights of me and my classmates. So you know, rookie flight, you're going up and doing remarkable things. STS-7, Sally Ride's first flight, they released a satellite, small satellite, from the end of the robotic arm, flew away from it a bit, maneuvered around it a bit, and then flew back up and captured it. That had also never been done before. Yeah, it's a, it's incredible just listening to it. And um, we'll signpost people uh, to uh, one of our interviews with you on a previous podcast where we can hear you talking about um, your that specific mission. Just uh, before we go, you'll be pleased to hear we've bought a Lego Discovery shuttle uh, that you've been <laughs> yes <laughs> that you've been very prominent with. We just wanted to know: Do you have one, and have you built it? I, yes and no. I do have one. I got it pre-assembled because it was the fully assembled model that we used for all the promo Excellent. filming. And the second thing is we've we've been we've been a bit late to the party on this one, but we've been watching um, For All Mankind, the series that reimagines that Russia got to the moon first, and that women were involved in the space program in America right from a very early stage. Have you been watching it at all? I'm afraid I've not been watching it, Sue, but. Uh, that's a great description. I'll have to start tracking it down and finding oh, yeah. it. Oh, yeah. I, I have a feeling you'd really, really like it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Kathy Sullivan, thank you so much um, for joining us. And um, we love the fact that your career is, well, it's been an incredible career, not just as an astronaut. The fact that you've been to the bottom, I think the lowest place in the ocean, I think, since we last saw, um, saw you is, is pretty incredible. So what next do you have to discover? Well, there are things to discover all around us every single day. They're not every day as dramatic as either leaving the planet or going to the very bottom of the ocean. But to me, exploring is not just physically going different places. It really is just putting curiosity into action. And I don't, I'm sure I will never run out of things in that regard. 
Dr. Kathy Sullivan, and that earlier podcast that I referred to with her talking about Hubble can be heard in our April 2020 edition of the podcast, which, like pretty much all of the others, can be found on the Naked Scientist website. Yeah, how many have we done now? Do we say more than 100? Over 100, yeah. So we must be on 105. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. We've celebrated our century. Yes, we've celebrated our century. We've made a lot of podcasts. Libby, we had the end of the space shuttle, and then we had that really that hiatus when America was relying on just the Soyuz, and the Soyuz is the only means to get to the International Space Station. But now we've got Soyuz, we've also got SpaceX, and looking to have increasingly more astronauts on the space station, and, and seven astronauts now almost all the time on the space station. Times are changing in so many ways. The Dragon capsule is allowing us to have seven people on the space station full time. That's a huge increase because that seventh person is devoted to science the whole time. Uh, It's really dramatically increased the amount of uh, science we can do. Of course, the astronauts on the space station have to look after the maintenance of it, have to keep it running. And those are the sort of fundamentally most critical tasks that have to be done because if you don't have a space station you can't do science so it's been fantastic to see that but we're also seeing these new spacecraft which are being operated commercially NASA are buying tickets from them the same way you or I might one day again buy an airplane ticket hopefully and that means that suddenly space is being opened up to more and more people. And we're starting to see these missions coming up. I saw just the other day, the uh, the crew for the first completely commercial flight that's going to take four people and just orbit them around the earth for a little bit. And a fantastic sightseeing holiday for a few days has been announced. Times are changing. The way space is set up is changing. And that is exciting to me because Whilst at the minute it, it's those very deep pockets that are there, there are people who are offering opportunities and in, in sort of um, raffles and competitions. More people will get a chance to go. The prices are going to come down. It means that there are more opportunities for entrepreneurs, for business people to take their ideas into space. We're going to see new manufacturing techniques get developed in space, which will change all of our lives with with new materials. It's really a a new frontier coming around the corner in the same way that the space shuttle was back in uh, 81 and the dawn of the space age was back in 61. Obviously, the pandemic has had an effect on on everyone's lives. Do you think it's had minimal effect perhaps on on the progress of of the space industry is it just sort of put things on a little pause or a few things but everything's going ahead as normal or will we have to pay effectively in terms of budget cuts in the future it's certainly been challenging to the space industry just as it's been to to many other industries we've had to adapt to working from home we've had restricted access to the manufacturing facilities where spacecraft are getting built in my area where we're looking at the science that happens on the international space station i've been working very closely with the european space agency who who the uk is a member of to to juggle different experiments um some which have been delayed because of impacts in the supply chain because of covid others have been able to to be brought forward because they can manage in gaps because we've got people over in the states there's all sorts of things going on but we're we're managing and, and we're progressing forward and i think one of the big tributes to the industry is that we have seen 
everybody reacts to it. We've seen things still launch as, as much as they can. We're still moving forward. The question on funding is something that is not just pertinent to the space industry. It's, it's of course, right across uh, the whole of, of this country and, and, and what will happen to those things. And that's absolutely something that I can't comment on. And uh, it is something to, to ask the, the Treasury and, and uh, the Prime Minister and that sort of thing. We could get a Prime Minister on the yeah, podcast. We'll get, see if Boris come on after he's had a haircut, even though it's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sue's very insistent on people having haircuts before they come on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to ask you an unfair question now. Um, 1961, we talked about with Yuri Gagarin, we've talked about the uh, space uh, shuttle in 1981. We're right now 2021. Can we jump forward 20 years? Where do you think we're, we're going to to be in the space sector? We will be back at the moon. That is coming. The lunar gateway is being built and we will see humans will have returned to the moon. And I think in 20 years time, and I, I say this with no government policy, this is, this is, this is me just Yes, I have to, have to caveat that. That's my, my view. Um, I think we'll be starting to talk about that horizon goal of getting humans to Mars. We won't be there in 20 years' time, but the horizon will be coming closer. And in fact, I think I'd even go another 20 years past that and say that then then in, uh, oh, goodness me, 19, uh, where are we, 2061. <laughs> yes, yes. Ah, crazy, crazy. Uh, I think... It, that will be when we're, we're talking about people on Mars. And we should just fill in very briefly these 20-year periods and markers. It's been 20 years that we've had the International Space Station living and working in orbit. That was you know, 2000. It was, it was a few months out of the April deadline. It was, it was November 2000 when we had the first crew arrive there that's marked continuous habitation ever since. So there really does seem to be this sort of 20-year drumbeat of, of the big significant things in human spaceflight. I quite like that, Libby, actually, because 2061 would be wonderful synchronicity, really, because it would be then exactly 100 years on from Gagarin's first spaceflight. That would be a nice little anniversary and a realistic one, I think, as well. Yeah, let's see. That that would be quite a career for me to have to to be sitting here and forty years has got me from from the space shuttle to today. I've been involved in the space station for the last twenty years. To to sort of imagine that the second half of of my life might play out, and, and in the next forty years we'd see that, and that would be quite something. And maybe I can come back on the podcast and and we can chat about that in in twenty or forty years time. It might not be me. I'll, I'll be wearing incontinence pads. I think in forty <laughs> years. Don't, so. No one wants to hear that. No one. <laughs> Wants to hear that. <laughs> and on that note, uh, Libby Jackson, thank you very much. <laughs> no one wants joining. I had one more question, actually. One, <laughs> all right, all right. You've, you've talked about your life and paralleling the, the space shuttle. So, are you putting money down now for a retirement condo on the moon? There are there are many challenges uh, to getting to the moon, and one of the questions that I talk about a lot in my job, when we talk with with the European Space Agency and with NASA about going back to the moon, which the UK will will play a part in, the word that comes up is sustainability, and what does that look like? We have to make sure that when we go back to the moon, we're going for the right reasons. We want to learn how to live and work outside the protection of the Earth's magnetic field. But we can't get stuck there and, and permanently send government money to the moon. It's the transition that we're seeing happen in low Earth orbit now. 
the replacement of the space station will will almost certainly be a, a commercially owned and operated space station. So what the transition to a, a sort of sustainable, perhaps commercial moon setup will be it is a really good question. I think the real question for me is, do I want to live out my days on the moon or in perhaps the more relative comfort of an atmosphere on Earth? It's funny you should say that because we watched the episode from season two of For All Mankind last night, which had a whole slew of astronauts all on a moon base. And um, one of the sort of main female characters, Stevens, uh, goes up and it and it's just like the worst possible life you can imagine. It's just like a whole load of men and women camping, but with the weather outside being really bad and the view being just very monotonous. They all end up drinking neat ethanol, you know, something out of the thing. It's a great imagining of of the reality of what it could be like. Actually. Let's finish on. Let's finish on a bit of optimism, though. Right. So you don't it, want incontinence. I don't want incontinence, and you don't, and want, don't the want the monotony of camping, of camping on the moon. On the moon. Okay, right. I would like yeah. the optimism of the fact that we are at a really exciting point, and just as we've talked about 1961 with Gagarin. 1981 with the space shuttle we're at another really exciting point in human space exploration we are now uh got the job at advert out for that next generation of, of european space agency astronauts and we want everybody in the uk to, to look at that and if they've got what it takes they think they've got what it takes they've got the skills please go for it. Let ESA be the judge of whether you are or not. Because those people will be taking part in these missions in this new, exciting chapter that we're just getting into in human exploration. But uh, people often you know, say to me, you know, do you want to be an astronaut? And, and I, I go and talk to children, to children's schools and so on, and, and see lots of hands go up. And then you do tell them that, yeah, it's it's camping for six months in a smelly, noisy space station with no shower and no ability to see your friends and family and a really quite, you know, intense work schedule with two hours of exercise every day and freeze dried food and, and so on. And people's minds change. I, I still think, though, that with all of that, there's there's enough people out there who who will be excited about it, should be excited about it. And just think, you know, these people are going to be part of the missions that return to the moon. We'll see that in the next 20 years. It was Yuri Gagarin and the Apollo missions and the shuttle that got me excited. All of them were done in a day where we had to wait for the images to come back on film before they were replayed. And they've been grainy. Just think what it's going to be like when we do go back to the moon and we have 4K live imagery straight from the moon. The inspiration for that will be amazing. The, the way we see our planet will change and it's coming. And, and everybody who's listening to this, um, who wants to be a part of it, absolutely can be. It's not just the astronauts. We need so many people to get involved in this. And, and that's what's coming in the next 20 years. Uh, and I hope that people do come and come and join in because it's a great place to be and a great place to work. Libby Jackson, UK Space Agency, thank you so much for joining us. And for more on the 35 new guys and their continuing influence on changing the idea of what it means to be an astronaut, I've made a radio program about them. It's called The Equal Rights Stuff. It'll be broadcast and podcast on the BBC World Service in the Discovery slot from Monday, 12th of April. It's really good. 
I'm sure it is. And you'll hear more from some of those shuttle astronauts here on the Space Boffins podcast over the coming months. If you've any thoughts on anything we've talked about, do drop us a message or comment on the usual social media platforms. Thanks very much to the UK Space Agency for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Jack, our producer. Blame him. And thank you for listening. (laughs)